And we're live. Thank you for coming back for yet another episode. We, we're glad you stuck with us for our third season as the Blasters and Blades podcast. Hey, all you crazy sci-fi and fantasy fans, it's time for your daily dose of shenanigans over here at the Blasters and Blades podcast. We're just three nerdy veterans geeking out over our science fiction passions and fantastical fantasies. A place where magic is king, the sky is the limit, and space is the place. We are the podcast that puts the fun in dysfunction. So without further ado, we're going to let our guest, Mr. Scott Overton, introduce Introduce yourself, please. Well, thank you. Uh, I'm a writer nowadays. I was a broadcaster in Canada, in Ontario, Canada, a radio broadcaster for my whole career. I always wanted to be a science fiction writer, so that's what I do now. And my work is generally science fiction thrillers that people compare to Michael Crichton because it's the high concept ideas, present day or near future, and a lot of thriller plot devices in action, that kind of thing. Okay. And the next part of the introduction, dear listeners, how we found them, he actually found us Well, his publicist did. And so he gave us some samples of the work and it sounded interesting enough that I knew, you know, we were, we were going to have to have him on and the rest, as they say, is history. So you've got a publisher, publicist that's actually working. So many of the, uh, you hear people getting swindled and they take the money and do nothing. Uh, your guy's reaching out. He's he doing good. I have to say he does yeah. a good job. So, um, we, before we get started, sir, we have to do this because it, we are the Blasters and Blades. This is a religion question. So are you ready for this? Yes. All right. Star Wars, Star Trek, or Firefly? Ah, you know, I love all three of them, but I'd have to say my tastes and philosophies align best with Star Trek. But I would have loved to seen Firefly go for a lot longer. And of course, you know, Star Wars is great too. Yeah. So what is it about Star Trek that speaks to you so much? Is it the, the optimism that does it for you? You know, I, I guess that probably most people say that, and it probably is. You know, I'd like to be optimistic about the future. I don't necessarily write all optimistic stuff because I'm a realist, but I'd like to think that someday we'll finally get our act together as a human race and be able to live together and live together with other species if we encounter them. So... Hopeful more than uh, than optimistic. I get it. It's aspirational. Okay. Yeah, yeah aspirational is good. Okay. And because we're polytheistic, Game of Thrones, Lord of the Rings, or The Wheel of Time? Well, you know, I like them all too, but Lord of the Rings was my all-time favorite. I used to read that every year during university. And in fact, I don't tell this to everybody, but when I got married, we got married in clothing, costume essentially, inspired by one of the Hildebrandt brothers, Lord of the Rings calendars. I kid you nice. not. Yeah, so, so I was in an Aragorn outfit, but the colors changed a bit, and yeah, yeah. So if they're, if your partner was willing to do that for you, that's a keeper right there, if they're embracing your nerdiness with you. You got that right. Yeah, we've been together for <laughs> 45 years plus, you know, yeah. But who's counting? <laughs> so... Because we at the Blasters of Blaze like the, both the scientific and the fantastical, which was your first love, sci-fi or fantasy? I have to say science fiction was because I really came to it by television probably more than than reading. I, I, it's hard to tell what children's stories, you know, you hear fairy tales and I guess that's fantasy. So, But I was into shows like Star Trek and Lost in Space and all of those things before I got into the Hobbit and Lord of the Rings and the ones that that led from there. So it's a pretty narrow thing. Though. So what was your first memory of engaging in speculative fiction? Was it whatever you were watching on TV? Would that be what Star Trek? 
I think I think it would be, but even before that, there were Twilight Zone episodes, and you know, and for that matter, um, comic books and and the stories that come out of that. It, you can it depends on where you draw those lines, I guess. But sure, all of that and Tom Swift, the original Tom Swift Junior books, I did read when I was a kid. I would consider those science fiction. Okay, I'll, yeah. I'll take that. Yeah. Um, did you ever read any of the Highline Juveniles? No, can't recall those. Um, I, I, I don't remember any of the juvenile ones, no. I don't know okay. why. The, I know I've read some of them again as an adult, but I did read them as kids. They were just, you know, in the Reader's Digest versions in waiting rooms of various doctors and such. Oh, really? So, huh? Yeah. So what is it about speculative fiction, the wider umbrella genre that you love so much? Well, you know, as a reader, it can take you anywhere that the human imagination can conceive. Anywhere, anytime. And as a writer, you can explore any kind of what-if question that can occur to you. Or you know, It's so broad. It seems to me that Almost every other genre that I can think of is pretty limited in what they can explore. But speculative fiction, science fiction, and fantasy, it's unlimited. You can go anywhere, anywhere. Sorry about that. I thought I muted it. Give me just... Technology will be the bane of us all. <laughs> do you want to do All that? right. No, 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 no. Not at all. No. Um, so how did your love of speculative fiction as a genre transition into you deciding to write stories in that space? I had always written stories and they were probably, as kids do, more what you consider fantasy. They're just made up things, uh, maybe inspired by fairy tales or who knows what. It's from the time that I could put words on paper. But as I loved reading science fiction, I just wanted to write it. And then one of the most I would say formative periods would have been when I was a teenager. My father was a huge science fiction fan. So we would have long discussions uh, at the dinner table after dinner over cups of tea and whatever about science fiction books that we'd read. And I just always had the urge to write. So I naturally had the words to write science fiction. I don't, I don't think I ever really had an urge to write much else. Although my first book was not science fiction. I was a radio broadcaster, so I wrote about what I knew, as they always tell you to do. But science fiction, as a, as a writer, that was all what I always wanted to do. It helps if you unmute yourself. Ah. You know, ah. you think you think after five seasons of podcasting, I'd get that right because you know you, you mute right. so you don't get the background noise and. And you never do. <laughs> I guess it beats the hot mic that I, you, so many people get themselves in trouble with. But so that's a good way to start. So your dad was a natural reader. Did he write as well? Or was that something that was just your inclination? No, he never, as far as I know, had any aspirations to write, nor anybody else in my family to do that. But it just, it was our love of science fiction in written form, but also shows like Star Trek. We watched Lost in Space, but we knew that they were, you know, a uh, uh, broad spectrum apart in, in reality and everything else. We followed all the space program and you name it. And it was just always in part of my DNA, I think. So when you watched like the original Star Trek and they had some of the amazing tech that has since become real, 
did you ever think that that would happen? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I sometimes wonder about space travel, and I always hope that we'll be able to develop something like a warp drive. And part of me says, oh, it may not happen. And if it doesn't, there go, you know, all my dreams, they would just collapse, right? But I <laughs> believe, I did believe that technology would happen. The one thing I'm not sure will ever happen is the transporter devices. I mean, how could you divide yourself up uh, and into molecules and atoms and whatever, subatomic particles, then put yourself back together again? I wish it would happen. I don't think it can. I know that there are scientists, because I've, I've, we covered this when we used to do some of the in the science news kind of thing, that were working on it. But it does, even if they manage to perfect it, it gets to some interesting philosophical questions. If they disassemble you and reassemble you, are you still you? Right. That's a fun thing to yes. think about. And, and uh, Star Trek considered that too with, uh, what's the, the engineer? Yeah. Um, but I mean, molecules and atoms and subatomic particles are always in motion. How do you capture a snapshot of that? We don't even know where the, where they are there. We predict where they are and maybe as observers, we freeze them you know quantum physics don't get me started but i don't know how they could ever really take a snapshot to reassemble something like that i suspect not too but it's definitely a fun thought exercise oh, one of those yeah. you know same thing with the you know the the jumping pad type technology that larry niven had and all these other oh yeah similar things right so yeah it's still fun to play with. So many authors will let their own real life experiences influence the stories they tell. So are there any formidable moments that you think shape you as a storyteller? I don't know. I mean, I, I do think that everybody has to struggle with, uh, with a lot of different things in their lives. And so all the characters have to struggle. I, I think it's really important to have real characters that have problems, issues, in most cases, they arise out of whatever your central conceit is, your central concept of your story, they're related to that. But that struggle and the seeking of, you know, uh, fixing yourself or whatever you want to call it, I think we all go through that in real life. And so I try to put that reality into stories too. Okay. So let's transition a little bit to the uh, fan side, uh, from the fan side to the writing side. So... Wow, I butchered that. Anyway, have you got any cool fan art or had anybody cosplay your characters yet? Oh, no. That would be so cool to have that. I have not experienced that yet. But if anyone wants to, by all means, go to my website, sign up for my newsletter, or send me an email. Get it to me. I would just love that. I'd love to be able to post it on my site if they would let me do that. That would be that would be pretty awesome. I think sci-fi sometimes has it a little harder than other genres because... I mean, you got to be really dedicated to re like to build a space marine outfit, unless you're something commercial like Star Trek. I mean, there's a lot of ingenuity that goes into that. Yeah, and uh, and while most of my stories don't go too far into the future, some of them do have some pretty high tech stuff or you know interesting concepts like being in the human bloodstream, and so it could bring uh, be a great place to have some concept art, but it hasn't happened yet. I'm looking forward to it. Okay. Um, so has anybody asked for your autograph? Yeah, they have. And in a number of different contexts, I tend to sell books in person quite a lot at markets and places like that. And so people really pretty much expect 
you too. And they love the idea that you're going to sign it and sign it to them or to somebody they're giving it to. So that's cool. I mean, I was also a radio personality. So I would get people occasionally asking for my autograph in those cases. And that was weirder to me for some reason. I thought, why? You know, you <laughs> want to get an autograph of this music star that I just introduced on stage. Okay. But mine, that doesn't make sense to me. It's funny because I never have collected autographs, especially with uh, celebrities that I met, but I love authors' autographs in a book. It just makes it that much more special to me. Does it matter if they're personalized to you or do you just like having them? Well, it's always nicer. It's always nicer. Yeah. I mean, it just it just shows you met them. And yeah. I think that makes it a little better. That's cool. So do you remember the very first time you got an autograph for your book, what that was like when someone said, hey, can you sign my book? Well, my very first book, when we had a launch uh, by the publisher and I started handing out those books and autographing them as we sold them and everything, that was a big rush. It just meant, yes, now I am a legitimate author. People are going to take this book. They're going to read it and read something that came right out of my head. And I've, I've made that level at least you know that level of success becoming a legitimate author has happened now okay so do you also sell them on your website if people wanted to buy them but couldn't get up to canada where you're at uh, well they do you know i do have a, a bookstore an ebook store on my website I don't have any facility for them to be able to order the print-on-demand editions, but they are available through Amazon or whatever. Uh, almost every outlet that does that kind of thing, you can order the print-on-demand copies. I haven't figured out a way to autograph those ones. I would have to do that through my own bookstore, and I haven't gotten into that. I haven't seen okay. the demand for it yet, so we'll see. So you're going to have to go old school, dear listener. If you want them to sign your book, you're going to have to buy it, mail it to them with a return self-addressed self self stamped envelope. Wow. Nobody says that stuff anymore. But but if you want it, you're going to have to work for it, people. Or move to Canada. You know, whatever. Me, you know, meet me at some event somewhere. I don't get to a lot of cons or anything like that. But if you meet me somewhere hey, and pull me aside and you got the book with me, with you, I'd be happy to autograph it. All right. So this is the part where we talk about everything you have written, Scott. So can you give us the Reader's Digest version of your body of work? Wow. Well, my first novel, as I was mentioning, was based on the radio world because I was a morning radio broadcaster in private radio. It was called Dead Air. I think there is a, you know, a law that says if you write a book about uh, mystery and drama in the radio industry, you have to call it Dead Air. I kidding, but there are many. And so that was about a morning radio guy who finds a death threat when he comes into work and thinks, ah, oh, it's got to be a joke, but it's not. It's about the vulnerability of media people. So he has to learn to cope with the fact somebody is actually trying to kill him and figure out who it is who wants him dead. He has no idea and nothing much for the police to go on. Now, after that, I set myself free to be able to write science fiction, which I wanted to do. And The Primus Labyrinth is my first science fiction novel, inspired by the old uh, 1960s TV movie, not TV, but movie, Fantastic Voyage. You got to remember that one. So I thought, well, how would that really happen with technology? And it's about a victim close to the American president whose bloodstream has been seeded 
with biochemical bombs that will create fatal blood clots if triggered. It's an extortion plot against the president. Well, he can't capitulate. So the only way to save the victim's life is to use this nanotechnology submersible, virus-sized submersible. I don't use a shrink ray like in the movie because I don't think that could ever happen either. But it's controlled by virtual reality, except that the consciousness of the pilot makes a much stronger link to the reality of that submersible than anyone expected. So there's a lot of issues there. The one after that is called Naida, and it's about a guy who finds an ancient alien artifact in a small lake when he's scuba diving. There's something still alive there, and he thinks he's been surrounded by this um, alien survival suit of some kind. No, it's alive, and it's a symbiotic alien that comes to live in him, a bioengineered one by the original alien race. So they uh, have to learn to live together. It is an entity with a consciousness, and they have to learn to communicate, live together. It gives them some special abilities, especially in water, and so there's a thriller element of that too, but it's played quite straight. While there's a superhero origin story element to it, it's, it is played quite straight. So that's an Aida. Uh, then I wrote a book, uh, brought out a book called The Dispossession of Dylan Knox. Long title, but the element of it is a, a strong female protagonist. She runs into her old high school flame who doesn't remember her. And as she investigates, thinking he may be an imposter for some reason, maybe a national security threat, she realizes he acts like different people practically every time she meets him. And indeed, there are multiple personalities in that head that are real. They have nothing to do with uh, psychosis or schizophrenia or anything like that. And none of them is the original Dylan Knox. There's a lot of a romant, a romantic element to it, but also a geopolitical thriller that it develops into. And then my newest one is called Augment Nation. And it's about 20 years from now when we don't need smartphones because we all have devices that link our brains directly to a computer for processing for uh, additional processing power, if you like, and to the internet. And of course, there can be a lot of bad things that come out of that. We know the risks and uh, hazards with smartphones. Imagine if you've got a direct brain to computer internet connection. That's kind of scary, actually. Yeah, exactly. It's a cautionary tale. So, yeah. yeah there's a lot so you, ref you referenced a lot of the more iconic, you know, Star, not Star Wars, sci-fi properties. Uh, so is there one that you think influences you the most, inspires you the most? Would it, would it be that Star Trek that, that, you know, was so hopeful or was there something else? Uh, I don't know about that. I think it's just um, there are certain writers that that write about important issues of the day. You know, they're, they're issues. You might be writing about something that takes place hundreds of years from now, but you're really writing about today. You're really writing about issues that we have now, and you're exploring them in the context of something futuristic or something that is is a little bit out there but it gives you a good platform for exploring the human condition, even as we know it. And certain issues certainly that are coming down the pipe, we know that could be making dramatic changes in our society, then science fiction writers sometimes have the, the, the calling to ring those alarm bells ahead of time and make sure that we can take the time to think how we want to uh, address these issues when they come up, I guess is the way to put it. Okay. 
So all of that obviously sounds fascinating, but today we're, we're here to talk about Augment Nation. So where did you come up with the premise for this universe and this story? I think essentially it came from the early days of the smartphones. I, mean, I wrote it some years ago, and we've just seen the smartphone the situation grow stronger and stronger. As you get more apps, we have more of our private information that we give away, more accessibility that we give to corporations and everything like that. And that's a slippery slope as the cliche goes. So it's something that we need to address as that increases, as we get more and more powerful apps, and especially if we get the brain augmentation that I'm talking about, which I really do believe is coming down the pipe, um, we need to address that. There are technologies, of course, like Neuralink. People know Elon Musk's Neuralink. And a lot of that is to address people with certain disabilities, neurological problems or whatever. So it helps them control a computer, or will help them control a computer, uh, perhaps, or limbs, if their own limbs aren't working right and not getting the neurological signals and nerve signals. Those kinds of technologies have actually been around for decades. They're making them better all the time. And I really believe it will be a consumer item within the next two or three decades. Yeah, I was. I don't remember exactly when, but it definitely happened during the the lockdowns with the uh, the late um, virus that I don't know if we're allowed to say on YouTube, so we'll, we'll avoid. Um, they actually had Elon Musk controlling a pig with uh, with one of the mesh inserts onto the brain. Mm -hmm. So it is. I mean, I think we're getting closer to that every year. Yeah, well, it's I, I, with animals have gone back to go back to about the seventies, seventies and eighties. Uh, really, for a hundred years or so, they've known about brain waves and identified brain waves, and have been able to read them in the in the sense of you know identifying that they were different different levels of of our awareness and consciousness and things like that. But as far as interpreting them, I don't know that the hardware is even uh, increasing that much. It is improving, but the software and the algorithms to interpret those brain waves into actual commands, controls, speech, or whatever it might be, is getting better all the time. And it really will get to the point where, you know, we may be able to use our GPS functions just by a thought, go to the internet and buy things just with a thought someday. I, that's kind of scary. So I get where your cautionary tale comes from. And I didn't realize the research had gone back that far. Yeah, yeah. I mean, as far as developing devices that people can control with their minds, it, it goes back to some early experimentations in the, in the 90s and things like that. And you can buy devices. There are devices available for sale, and they're not in the tens of thousands of dollars. They're in the hundreds to thousands of dollars that can help people that have maybe a spinal cord injury or some trauma like that uh, to control limbs or control wheelchairs or control cursors on computers, depending on what you're looking for and what you need. Interesting. All right. Well, before we get too deep into Augment Nation, which is what we're here for, we're going to take a moment while we shamelessly shill for the man. And I'm going to play that commercial interlude. Van, I know this is hard for you to accept or even believe. But you're not imagining this. You're not going crazy. 
your grandfather believed right down to the core of his being in protecting those who couldn't protect themselves. You expect me to believe that my grandfather was a star-faring soldier? I can prove it to you. And how are you going to do that? By taking you for a flight. Whenever you're ready, Van. Podium really outdid themselves with that uh, with that commercial. Pretty cool. Kind of jealous. Yeah. Kind of yeah. jealous. That's kind of badass. <laughs> All right. So um, now we are back talking with Mr. Scott Overton about his book. But before we dig in, we're going to take a moment where we talk about this um, cover. Oh, there we go. Show that on the screen. Mm -hmm. So uh, where did you get the idea for this? This is a. I'm used to starship ass or or explosions or you know space marines on the kind of books I read. This definitely doesn't, you know, fall. it's unique in the crowded field of covers. It's it's definitely thought provoking as far as covers go. So what made you decide to go that route with your with your book cover? Well, you know, I don't think I can take a lot of credit for that because I hire a cover artist to do it. And uh, this is a guy that I, I've worked with for now four novels. And I can give him a concept and go, I don't know what you're going to do with this. You know, it's crazy. Um, and he will come back with, you know, six or seven different possible treatments. And I find one that I like and we work on it, work it back and forth until we get something that we we like. That one, uh, he came up with substantially that cover pretty early on in the process. And so it was just whittling down little things here and there and fixing it. Then I often will ask my Facebook friends and followers which cover they like because he might have there might be two or three that I quite like but i one's maybe a different color tones or something and so i'll ask that they give their feedback and then i i pick but it's interesting because although i don't think you have access to it there was another cover that i used for the hardcover in this particular case i loved this cover i knew that you know even before people voted for it on my facebook page um that that was probably the one that i would go with but there was another one that was more like a retro 1970s Isaac Asimov type cover. And I still oh nice too. And I just had to go with that. I wish I had it with me to show you. I don't have it uh, to hand. And it's cool, and it, but it's just vector graphics. It doesn't have an actual photograph. And it just has a retro feel that I like. So I decided, in fact, to do a hardcover version. Okay. So before I knew anything about your book, before I even read the blurb, I saw 
the the mesh, the the lights, which tells me it's either some sort of nanite or some sort of mesh. In the red background, it's kind of cautionary. So I I got techno thriller cautionary vibes just before I knew anything else about the book, just from the image. Yeah. So that's that's exactly what you're going for. Yeah. So moving moving on to the book itself, what would your thirty second elevator pitch for this novel be? Well, Damon Leiter, the main character, has had a brain-computer interface implanted beneath his skull since he was 14 to correct a neurological condition. And as it goes along, he develops some very special abilities with that. As a teenager, it makes him an outcast. But as an adult, well, he may be the next step in human evolution. But when brain augments become the must-have consumer technology, corporations, mega corporations, and governments turn marketing into mind control. And we need a leader to save ourselves. Consumerism runs rampant. Damon doesn't know whether he could be playing into the hands of the rich and famous. In fact, they may be even right when they say that the real enemy of humanity is Damon Leiter. Uh, Okay. I would always say the real enemy of humanity is always humanity, but well, Damon might be it too, I guess. And in this case, it's the, the fact that he could be a change, an evolution in humanity that may not be for the better. Is it good? So in your world, do you see this as always sort of the transhumanist approach where it's always something added after the fact? Or is this adaptive technology and adaptive in a way where if he had kids, he would pass that on because they would be born with this nanites, whatever? Well, no, it doesn't get into nanite. It's it's real technology that will be developed much like Neuralink is working with. Implanted electrodes, very, very fine electrodes implanted into the brain. And there are some that go back, you know, again, some decades that has been done. There are different ways of doing it to uh, detect and translate brains, thought waves. But these are, are that. They're not in the nanotechnology, but of course, farther down the road that could very well happen i see this as implanted technology now in damon's case it is implanted electrodes but when it becomes a consumer item more likely it's just something you slap on and strap on stick on whatever behind your ear and it can read it through a number of different ways there are a number of different technologies including what they call functional mri um, and even blood oxygen sensors there are different ways of measuring thoughts that way. Some of them are faster, some of them are slower, some of them work better for uh, particular desirable outcomes. But yeah, it's all there. So how much research did you have to do for this novel to get that technology? I did do a lot of research, there's no question about it. But the technology that is in there, um, the actual technology I think is very close to technology that's already being developed. It just takes it a little step further. Like I said, the algorithms will be probably what changes more than the actual hardware itself. So then in my story, although it's directly uh, implanted in Damon to help him, he's got a brain condition called agnosia. He can't really recognize faces. He can't recognize a lot of ordinary objects. So it's to help that because he's had brain damage from a car accident. But as they do upgrades in both hardware and software, 
he develops these abilities that become much more like the kinds of things we use our smartphones to do, but directly controlled and commanded by thoughts and getting back and forth with that direct uh, direct connection. So it's, it is, you know, one of those things that he develops as well as the technology itself being developed by researchers and uh, engineers. So it's almost like he has to write his own user manual for his new brain. He develops this. You think about it. If you've got that, that computer directly connected to your thoughts and you've got access to that, yeah, you can essentially write your own programming for it eventually. Uh, he does it and it very intuitively. So I didn't get a lot into programming and coding, that sort of thing, because I don't think it'll work that way. You know, often you'll sometimes see in movies representations of the coatings where they go deep into things that look almost like Tron type graphics. And uh, we see things by analogs of the programming. And I think that that's the way it will probably happen for somebody with the kind of device that he has. That's the, that would be interesting to see. Cause the other part of that is, you know, sometimes humanity is impulsive and we, we have to learn not to be when it's tied directly to your mind, like uh, how do you build in a filter to, to stop you, you know, against your better, you know, better judgment or, or as the expression goes. Yeah. So Something. Damon, when he gets it as a 14 year old, it does what it's supposed to be doing. But as it gets more of a, you know, a particularly connection to the internet and GPS capabilities and things like that, he develops different abilities to be able to use it. And a lot of the book then later uh, is trying to develop ways of fighting back against this intrusive uh, stuff that marketers are doing and governments are trying to do. So he's all the, developing all these different aspects of the technology himself to try to fight back against the bad stuff that is happening. It, as with the internet itself, also, a lot of the abilities uh, and different features of the internet were driven by sex and by porn. Now, in Damon's case, it's not porn so much, but he does use sex to try to develop some of the particular abilities. If you think about having an implant like this, an augment like this, and another partner perhaps has an augment as well, texting or communications, whatever form you want to think of it, can become almost like telepathy. And so he Ooh. works at doing that and developing these uh, almost telepathic, the next best thing to telepathy, connections. And sex is a natural driver for that. Okay. So what do you think makes Augment Nation special? Well, I think it's... It's important. I don't know, uh, you know, if special is the right word. I think there have been similar books, similar explorations of technology like that. But I think it's an important cautionary in that this is technology that I truly believe is coming. And it's going to have a lot of the features that I described, probably more. I'm probably underselling it and underestimating what it's going to be like, because look how we, we had no idea where the personal computer would go. We had no idea where the smartphone would go. And this is the similar kind of thing. So we know that this kind of thing is coming. It's going to open up these various issues, good and bad. The potential for good things is amazing. The potential for bad things is totally frightening. 
So it's an important book in pushing people to think about these issues before we get to those points. Laws are always behind technology, and they probably will be in these cases too, but we can try. As science fiction writers, we can try to push that dialogue and make that happen, make those discussions happen. So I think it's important that way. Okay. So do you feel like that there are any specific tropes within the field of speculative fiction that you hit the best when you were writing this novel? This novel? Um, I, I don't know. I mean, there is certainly the, the trope in literature of the person who is somewhat broken, who maybe has guilt issues and is seeking redemption of one kind or another. Uh, Damon certainly has issues and he's certainly trying to work his way through uh, some of that and, and redeem himself. He also is not a hero type. And a hero is needed. A leader is needed in his world, in the way things have been going. And he finds himself, in some ways, implicated in some of the bad things that happen. He, he goes to work for a marketing company at first. So he may have some responsibility for that. And simply by the fact that he has... Uh, special powers. He has responsibility to use those for the for good rather than evil. Now, where have you heard that before? That's definitely a truth. <laughs> those, you know, to Spider Man, to Superman, whatever. But it's still true. If you have uh, you know extra abilities and powers, should you be using it for good? Or should you be using it for yourself in selfish, maybe not so good ways? Okay, so in addition to tropes, what genre or subgenre do you feel like this novel hits the best? Well, I would say definitely in the cautionary area, like Fahrenheit 451 or The Handmaid's Tale or even something like 1984, where people imagine how the future could be and generally painted in extreme colors, but that's for a purpose. It's to shake us up a little bit and make us see where things could go at their most extreme. Of course, then you say, is it at the most extreme? And you say, The Handmaid's Tale. Well, that seems really extreme. And then you watch the news headlines and go, maybe it's not as extreme as I thought. I think it fits in that subgenre probably best. Okay. That is some, some august company to keep. Um, so now let's talk about the story itself. So what can you tell us about your main character? What do you think makes him stand out in the crowded field of speculative fiction? I think he's a, a very real person in, in one of those situations that are hard to face, where you are an outcast, you're an outsider. He will never be like everyone else after the point that he has this brain augment in his brain. And when he first goes back to school, of course he gets bullied. He, uh, he zones out a bit, spaces out a little bit. And people notice that. They notice that his head is shaved because he had this operation, this surgery. They notice all these things and kids are terrible when it comes to being cruel. And so he, he faces that, but he has to face the fact that He's never going to be like everybody else. And there's also the strong element of how much humans can change and still be human. He's got something that makes him quite different from everyday people, especially before augments become very widespread. And, you know, is he still normal? What is normal? That kind of exploration that people have to face, it's always a, a, 
very human struggle and it's a difficult one. But I think we all have some of that, especially when we're teenagers, we're looking to try to identify our identity, identity and build an identity for ourselves. And we always have that struggle with what is normal? Am I normal? What is normal important? What does it really mean anyway? And who cares? You know, there are all those different issues. And I think that this is what uh, what Damon struggles with the most. He also has some issues where he's recruiting followers, if you like, to help him in his struggle. And they do end up suffering as casualties, various kinds, some of it just because of the technology, some of it because of some of the nefarious forces that are out there that they're battling against. So he's got that issue, uh, the guilt of a leader who is maybe leading followers into danger, if you like. So we talked about the main character. Were there any secondary characters that were especially memorable to you? Well, uh, his love interest in the story is very sharp, very bright, and maybe real the real hope for the future if Damon fails. Uh, she's pretty special. I really like her as a character. And there's also his college roommate. His college roommate is named Khan, and he is a bit of a con artist too. But uh, he is the one who sort of introduces Damon. He's a very self-centered laissez-faire kind of guy, lives in the moment. He introduces Damon to internet sex, where people, <laughs> participating partners, have these special suits that can stimulate your erogenous zones under the control of somebody else who you may never meet, probably would never will, and may never even use their real names. And so there's a, you know, kind of thing there that he introduces Damon to, which leads to some other explorations. But he's kind of a He's one of those sidekick sort of characters that you can't help liking and can't help feeling bad when things don't go all that well for him, as they don't. Like the uh, the friend slash neighbor kid from, was it Leave it to Beaver that was always over, causing not trouble? Not quite as obnoxious, no. Yeah. But, you know, <laughs> we, we have those characters who are irresponsible and sometimes their own worst enemies but you can't help but love them for a lot of their qualities anyway. Just in, in fact, some sometimes it's because of that very part of them. So what can you tell us about the uh, bad guys in this novel without spoilers, obviously? Well, most of the bad guys uh, are corporate. So, you know, you've got that sense of that whole mega corporation uh, body of mega corporations, if you like. Mind you, there is one who does show up more and kind of uh, primarily as introducing some of the chapters in the second half of the book. He does become the face of the antagonism, but the antagonists are really uh, all the all the mega corporations, all the really rich, wealthy corporate interests out there that would just love to have this direct access into people's heads. Now, of course, governments are also implicated there. Uh, I don't get so much into a face of government, but there is one corporate uh, face that does take center stage more than any other, I guess. Okay. Speaking of characters, if Damien met you in a back alley after the hell you put him through by, by riding that car accident to start with, 
Um, how do you see that interaction playing out? I don't think he'd be very happy with me. The car accident is the least of the worries and troubles that I've heard. <laughs> That's yeah. not encouraging. I mean, people try to kill him, and they've tried to kill him numerous times, once very close to being successful. And so, you know, there's all of that. Plus, he has to essentially go on the run when he ends up really fighting against these powerful, powerful forces you know that they have the means to track you down wherever you go and stop whatever you're doing. And at every turn, he's having to try to get around some block, an obstacle that they put in his face, in his way, in his path. But he's also put his life in danger as soon as he becomes known for what he's doing. As soon as he gives up anonymity, he's in trouble. So I don't think he'd be really happy with me. I, <laughs> I would hope that uh, I wouldn't have any kind of brain augment that he could take control of because he would definitely mess my head up. So how many people, when he's running from the, from the corporations, how common is it at that point to have those augments? Well, you know, smartphones are pretty common nowadays, and these augments become say you know in the early part of the the smartphone uh, whatever you would call it the when it began to spread it's not a hundred percent of the population but it would be a pretty significant uh, portion of the population probably more than 50 percent of of active consumers certainly and maybe not so much of the older generation but almost all of the younger generation and that's for good and for bad. They, you know, they they don't necessarily see him as an enemy. There is an element that I kind of compare to Tommy, the Who's rock musical. You got a, a bit of a messiah type character and with rabid fanatical followers. That is on sometimes good and sometimes bad. So there's always that uh, du dual sided uh, element of that, too. But it's a large number, a large percent of the of the population that would have these implants or would be affected by them in some form. You know, some people have the very latest smartphones and they would have had Google Glass if they worked out and everything else, all the, the newest cutting edge technology. And other people have a kind of a smartphone that works, but they still get spam calls or they you get whatever. Uh, they're, everybody's implicated in some form to varying degrees. Okay. So it doesn't sound like they would give him significant advantage if everyone else has him too at the point where he's running from everyone. So I was wondering if they would make him almost OP, overpowered, um, if he's like one of the only ones who's got him. Oh, I see what you're saying there. No, um, I mean, they are, you would compare it to someone like me who has a smartphone and uses it to a computer hacker. He's got the, okay. the skills of a hacker and I don't. So while we may have the apps available to us, we don't have the ability and the skills and the extra tricks in our toolbox to be able to take control of them or adapt them or you know hack into them essentially and do whatever you might imagine can be done to them. He has that ability for good and for bad. So there's where he stands out still from the crowd. So is that something he studied at college? Because well, you you know you mentioned he went to school, or is that something he taught himself as far as the the hacking and the the increased skill set with the device? 
It is both. But I mean, you figure if someone's got that from the time that they're a teenager and they're working at it. All oh, that's right. That's right. It's with them all the time. Yeah. It's just becomes second nature. You you think, OK, somebody's got uh, somebody's got a phone It's playing music. I wonder if I can mess around with the, the playlist that they're playing just for fun. So it's the early adapter status that gave him the leg up. It, it did definitely, yeah. He was he was one of a very few at the time that he got this implant when he was fourteen. Later on, they become a, a, a technology that becomes widespread as a consumer device. But of course, manufacturers are not going to build in uh, that kind of hacking ability that he develops on his own into a consumer advice that they're selling. It's not in their nature or in their interest to do that. So they don't have that ability. He does. Since we're talking about the characters, do you have a char favorite character archetype when you're writing um, these people in this this interesting world? No, I don't think so. But I I, I don't have you know I, I like nicer characters if that are well meaning. They are flawed. I definitely have to have flawed characters because who isn't flawed? I don't tend to write people that are really evil. Everybody's the hero of their own story. Even the, the guy you would consider a bad guy in the story, in Augment Nation, is still the hero of his own story. He doesn't think he's bad. He's just got his own interests at heart, and uh, he's looking after them, looking out for number one. And I don't write, you know, really harsh, evil-type characters. I don't write superhero characters who have no flaws. Of course, they're not very interesting, and you can't do a lot of conflict with them. Um, but I do like to have people who are generally well-meaning. They do their best. They struggle. They try to do good. But in many cases, we all fail, right? So we have to pick ourselves up and try again. Okay. So finally, what can you tell us about the universe where this story takes place? It sounds like it's near future, but how near is it? It is near future. I placed the story. Take it, it takes place essentially 20 years from now. So things in the world around him are not going to be all that different. You can imagine most of the, the things that we have now are going to be extended. Ever more streaming content, ever more access to things online and easier and easier consumer options and all of those things becoming just more of what we've got. Not a lot of change that way in the 20 years that we've got to come. But then with this technology that uh, gives you direct brain reading of the device and computer processing, augmenting your own brain uh, capabilities and things like that, even more so. Nowadays, we may turn to Google and Wikipedia to find out any kind of information we want. At this time, it'll be more like you just think of it and the answer will come. You come up with an idea and you might not even be sure if that idea is original or if somebody planted it there. It's going to be one of those interesting times, as the Chinese might say. May you live in interesting times. It'll be interesting 20 years, 30 years from now. So is this a, a book that's out in audio as well, or is right now just print ebook in hardcover? Yeah, no, I actually, as a former radio person, I do record audiobooks, narrate audiobooks for other people as a freelancer. And I have recorded not very many of my own works. It's a lot of work, and you don't know how much you're going to be able to make back when it comes to uh, 
you know, remuneration for that. So I've gotten lazy and I have not brought it out as an audiobook yet. I'm telling myself, I've been telling myself this winter, I am going to record my own books and I'm going to bring them all out as audiobook. For now, Augment Nation is available as an ebook everywhere ebooks are sold, including, you know, Amazon's and EPUB. Uh, formats for Kobo or whatever, and it's available as a paperback, a trade paperback, and as a hardcover, print-on-demand. So wherever you buy books, you could get them to order it, but they're not likely to stock it uh, right off the bat. Okay. And what age range do you feel like this story is sort of aimed at, like your target audience? And then... it's, definitely, it's definitely an adult book. It's not that it has a lot of graphic sex. But as I've described, sex is a part of it. Uh, there isn't a lot of graphic violence in it either. But the issues are adults. The characters are adult. Even though uh, he starts out as a 14-year-old, it's not a kid's book. So it would be for a really mature teenager, perhaps. But primarily, I see it for you know adults over 18. Yeah, mainly, I guess, because of the sexual content, even though it's not very explicit. Okay. So is Augment Nation going to be part of a series? Is the story done? I don't see it being a part of a series. Now, when I write books, I have not yet written a series. I've written standalone books, but always with the possibility that a publisher may want to publish them and then say, what is going to happen next? What's your idea for a sequel? I will come up with ideas for a sequel. Now, there are elements of the world here and the future history of this book that crop up in some of my other books. Uh, in The Dispossession of Dylan Knox, there is an element of the future that harkens back to the history that happens just after Augment Nation. So there is a bit of that, but there isn't, a, they, I wouldn't consider them a series. It's just a sort of, they all use the same world and the same timeline. And I could say that for something that I've written, but also haven't published. It also will use some of the same history timeline. So it's a shared universe, not more than a series specifically. That's what I'd describe it. Yeah. Yeah. And Earth okay. and the future, you know, not far flung future for sure. So we all know that every literary universe has their own internally consistent rules of science and technology. So besides the augmentations, what other tech can we expect? Uh, well, that, that keeps it pretty busy as far as the technology goes. I mean, you know, there's still, I don't have flying cars in it. How long have we been expecting flying cars since the 50s, if not a lot earlier, and we still don't really have them? And I don't know that we'll have them in 20 years from now. There are reasons for that. So there's not a lot of change in technology. I think that uh, most of the, the things that we take for granted in our world will be taken for granted there. They're just the easier ways of buying and paying for things and uh, further developments of things that we've already got now. Okay. So that sounds interesting. So of, um, if you had the opportunity to get the augmentation, would you take it? Oh, wow. Yeah. I don't know whether I would go quite that far. I'd certainly be not one of the first adopters. I, th I think that th th there is an issue that, that does crop up in the book in that you know, you can, as I say, develop something that might be the closest thing to telepathy. 
and especially between willing partners. We know how we can have devices that connect via Bluetooth or via Wi-Fi, and they don't have to go out over the broader internet. But you could have that in the same situation with the technology that I described. Well, if you have that kind of close connection, say, with a partner, where does privacy go at that point? How much intimacy can people really stand? And can relationships stand? And so those things are also explored in the book. And for those reasons, I don't think I'd be the first to jump on the bandwagon. I would definitely want to explore and research that technology and see what could be done with it, how much you could block it, how easily you could block what you don't want coming in and out. And um, you'd want a lot of safeguards. That's kind of what I'm getting at with the idea of it being a cautionary book. With technology like this coming, we need to know that there can be safeguards and that they're easily put into place and easily adaptable, customizable for the average person, not, you know, the, the person with the technical ability of a, a computer hacker. So we need to make sure that comes in right at the beginning. And for those reasons, again, I'm not a super consumer. I wouldn't have to jump on this bandwagon right away. I'd be afraid of it. That's fair. That's fair. All right. So this is a more of a general question. Um, so do you write any stories with uh, with aliens or magical creatures in them? Well, my second science fiction novel, Naida, is about an alien symbiotic being that comes to live in the main character's body. And so that is an alien. And now I've written a lot of short fiction, some of which did have aliens in it. In that particular case, this alien is is nebulous there it has no physical form except for being absorbed into the body there's nothing to see i love the fact um and again i don't have the cover with me when i gave this concept to my cover artist he came up with a cover that i love it's just evocative it's not accurate per se strictly speaking but it's very evocative so that kind of alien uh, is not that strange a stretch as far as the fact that we can communicate with them. I know a lot of scientists will say, aliens, we may never be able to communicate with them because we'll have no common ground on which to base that, even mathematics. But in this particular case for the needs of the story, it was a, an alien that we could identify with. Some of the other ones that I've written are more along the lines of the Star Trek alien where you know, they're essentially humanoid, may even under certain circumstances be able to pass for human and, and that kind of thing. I haven't written anything that was too weird and out there, although my current work in progress does take place a little farther in the future in space, and I'm going to play with some different alien uh, forms, I guess, in that one. So when you write these aliens, and this is not targeting any specific book, just, you know, as you as a creator and creative type, would you let your nightmares inspire you, mother nature, create something completely new? How do you think you'll go about creating these, these creatures? Well, you know, I do think that nature probably would uh, inform me more than anything else. If I came up with something brilliant in a nightmare, yeah, sure, I would use it. But I think there are strange enough creatures in nature just on this planet above and below the oceans and anywhere you want to look in some of the extreme places, some of the extremophiles, as they call it, some of these strange life forms that live in these strange environments are pretty weird looking. And um, some of them may have even different chemical compositions 
there are some researchers going into that kind of thing too. So I think I'd be most informed by nature. Okay. So you know, clearly this interview is winding down, but before we let you go, was there anything about Augment Nation that we didn't ask that you want to tell us about? I think we covered a lot of it, but I, I want people to understand with it that a, it's a very human story. The character has real issues that, you know, some of them are bizarre. They're, they, they make him an outcast. Some of them are very human. Being, being bullied, being, you know, feeling strange and exploring what is normal and, and am I normal. Um, so it is a very human story. It also does have that technology element to it, but I don't make it inaccessible. You don't have to have a, a degree in engineering or computer science or anything else to understand what, what's going on. If anything gets a little too technical in some of the Wi-Fi bands or anything, it's not hard to skip it and you won't miss anything. And then it also has a, a lot of a thriller structure in that there's quite a bit happening and, it, and the action picks up the pace as the story goes on. So there's that element to it. I like to have real issues. I like to explore real issues, but I also like the action element of thriller plots. Okay. All right. So before we let you go, dear listener, this is the part where we remind you to please be kind and speak your mind on the reviewing platforms. Your reviews help the right readers find the right books. So do your part. It really does help. Uh, and as we wind this up to a close, we, all of the links will be in the show notes, but Scott, can you tell people where they can find you? Well, the first place to start, of course, is, uh, is my website. It's just www.scottoverton.ca. Uh, Scott, as you see it on the screen, and it has links to everything else that you need to know. It has uh, sample chapters of some of the books. Every book has its own page. It does have the e-book store, but it also has you know, book trailers that you can access, some video interviews that are linked there that you can access. You can sign up for my newsletter. So that is the first place to start. I am also on Facebook. It's scottoverton.author on Facebook. Um, but, you know, that's... That's a secondary source. And then I am available on a lot of different sites, but most of them would be linked from my website or you could get there from there. That's the place I, I would most steer people to. Okay. And you can find us, dear listener, on Twitter at twitter.com backslash SF underscore fantasy underscore show. Sierra Foxtrot underscore fantasy underscore show. You can email us at blastersandbladespodcast at gmail.com. Again, that's blastersandbladespodcast at gmail.com. You can find us on our Facebook group where all the shenanigans happen over at facebook.com backslash groups backslash blastersandbladespodcast. You can follow us on our website at anchor.fm backslash blasters tech and tech blades. Again, anchor.fm backslash blasters dash and dash blades, where for as little as 99 cents a month, you can help keep the lights on. So uh, if you want to support, we greatly appreciate it. And we are also working on a proper website. Uh, Doc has already bought the domain name, but, you know, holidays being what they are, we are working on getting all of that, um, all of that set up. Uh, in the meantime, you can follow us uh, over on buymeacoffee.com backslash author J.R. Hanley and support the show more directly. Again, buymeacoffee.com backslash author J.R. Hanley. Be sure to put in the comments section that it's for the podcast. And I promise I will keep my co-hosts, Doc Saska and Nick Garber, duly caffeinated. They will drink until their liver explodes. 
Uh, and with that, I want to thank you for spending some of your precious time with us. For Nick Garber and Doc Seska, I am J.R. Hanley, and this was the Blasters and Blades podcast. We'll be back next week at the same time where we'll indulge our love of nerd culture, cheesy jokes, and all things that go boom. Uh, and on that note, thank you for stopping by, Scott. This was fun. I appreciate it, man. Thanks for letting me be a part of your season three. All right. Thank you.